story here today, Matthew presents us two stories that are rolled into one. We'll work our way through the text as uh, we as we work the way through the sermon and try to make some application as we go along. But if if you pay attention to each of these two stories, we we kind of find that almost nothing about each story has anything to do with the other one. They're very they're very separate. Really, the only connection that they have together is their combining here in Matthew and Mark and Luke's gospel. It's very likely that the characters in either story had never met each other, and we see no indication that they ever did meet. The one combina- the one common thread that they share is Christ. But the Spirit of God moves Matthew to record both of these events for the readers to learn a very important truth about Christ. To really understand the stories here that we have in Matthew 9, uh, we have to go back to the beginning. And I don't mean to the back of Matthew 9, beginning of Matthew 9, I mean 12 years before this. Luke 8.42 tells us that the little girl in our story was 12 years old and the woman in the story had an issue of blood that lasted for 12 years. So we go back 12 years Twelve years ago, a man named Jairus and his wife were celebrating the arrival of a baby girl. No doubt, uh, they rejoiced over the birth of their little child, just like those of us who are parents have. Uh, we, we are excited, we celebrate, we rejoice, we long for that day, and it finally arrives and it's marked with uh, just joy and a joyous occasion. And as with any child arriving on the scene, the lives of these parents would be forever changed. Do you remember the first time you held your child and you thought, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Uh, too late. You better be ready for this. You're going to figure it out as you go. But that, that sense of, of uh, reality setting in, that things are different now. I'm responsible. I remember my first thought was, if this child becomes a, a serial killer, it will look at me and blame me. I remember thinking, if this kid does anything good, I will get a little bit of credit. But if he's ever on TV, he will say, hi, mom, and not dad. These are, these are deep thoughts that I, I had when I held my son for the first time. These people, Jairus and his wife, they loved their daughter, nurtured her, they taught her, enjoyed the precious fleeting moments that we have as parents with our children. And this little girl grew up before their parents' eyes and matured into a fine young woman. For 12 years, Jairus loved his daughter. He had high hopes for his, for the future, for what lay ahead in her life. And as she approached the age when Jewish girls became recognized as Jewish women, he no doubt had thoughts of what lies lay in store for her, whom she would marry. Where they would, where they would live, what they would, what they would be like, what the the grandchildren that would come uh, shortly after that. But then one dark day, a cloud settles over the the household. There, Jairus's little girl is sick. She's near the point of death. What's interesting is if you read the different stories that Matthew and uh, tells us that she was dead, but uh, Mark and Luke say that she was near the point of death and. We won't get into the, the nuances behind that, but she was very, very sick, very near the point or, or dead. 
Surely they had done everything that, that could be done in those days, just as you or I would do whatever we could to save our child, to help our child. There's not a more more uh, hopeless feeling than watching your child go through something that you can't fix. You can't take it away. You can't take the hurt from them. You don't even know what they're what, what's wrong sometimes, especially when they're young, and you just watch them suffer. And we we trust God, but we 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 trust the knowledge that He has given to doctors and and the, the advancements that we've made with medicine. And in, and I'm sure Jairus and his wife did everything that they could, but nothing worked. They had run out of options. And Matthew doesn't tell us how he found out, but somehow Jairus found out that Jesus was in town. Jairus was going to go to him and and and, and beg Jesus to come and heal his daughter and save her. Maybe he had witnessed some of the miracles that Jesus had already done. Maybe he had just simply heard about them and thought that maybe there was hope for his daughter as there had been for so many others. So in desperation and fear, Jairus makes his way to find Jesus and try to convince him to come and help. Verse 18 tells us as we begin the story that as he approaches Jesus, he falls down before him. He he knelt before him and begged Jesus to save his little girl. Verse 18, look there with me. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. Now it's debated here whether or not, just in the, in the, in the language that is used here, whether or not Jairus was actually worshiping Jesus, as we read earlier together, as you might see it in your, in your copy, uh, that he was worshiping Jesus as the Messiah, or if he was simply falling down before him out of a great respect uh, and a great, uh, a great, great humility, as uh, some translations will just say that he knelt before him there. But this posture was a sign of reverence, and as I said, of humility, which does include the act of worship. Now, as a ruler of the local synagogue, that was, that was Jairus' position, he was a very wealthy man. He was a very influential man. He was a very powerful man. And so the fact that such a man as Jairus would come to Christ and get on his knees before him and worship him and give him reverence and great respect is no small matter. And it shows us that Jairus recognized how dire the situation was how important it was that Jesus uh, be, it was really, he recognized that it was Jesus was his last hope. And he recognized his great need. And in either way, whichever, whichever way you, you, you decide that, that, it, that it means there, Jairus had the faith that Jesus could do something to save his daughter. And so he rushes through town, finds Jesus, and presents his problem, and asks him to come and lay his hand on her. If you remember some of the stories that we've gone as we've made our way through Matthew, this is very similar to when the centurion back in chapter 8 found Jesus and came to him and said, I have a, a, a servant boy, a, a son who is sick, and I need you to, to uh, heal him. But in that story, he didn't say, come and lay your hand on him. Remember what he said? Only say the word and he will be healed. Here Jairus says, come and lay your hand on her and she will be healed. But notice the confidence 
here in Jesus' ability at the end of verse 18 there. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. No ifs, no hopefullys. We'll see what happens. Maybe you can do this, but no. You do this and she will live. I don't know. I've, I've gone back and forth this week on how to classify Jairus' faith. At the beginning of the week, I called it great faith because of the words that he says there. And yet at the same time, I, I, I see some indications that maybe that faith wasn't as great as I kind of want it to be there. But whether it was great faith or not, it was enough to believe that if Jesus touched His daughter, she would live again. So we read in verse 19 that Jesus agrees to go with him there. And Jesus, verse number 19, um, Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. So you get the picture. They're going through town. Jesus is not passing through this town uh, anonymously, uh, covertly. There is a crowd around him. He's led by Jairus, who is a man that you would notice as he was walking through town. Jesus has gained popularity. His disciples are with him, so he's already brought a bit of an entourage. And yet there are more and more people around him uh, just to see, just to, 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 to say a word, maybe to hear him say something, or maybe to see what he's going to do. And again, whether or not Jairus really understood who Jesus is, or if he believed him to be the Messiah, Jesus, because of his great compassion, and because of his mercy for the hurting, went to heal and to help. Then in verse number 20, we see this ever so slight overlap of our second story. It's kind of sandwiched in there between Jairus' story of Jairus' miracle. And we begin in verse number 20. And as this is going on, verse 20 says, Behold, there it is again. There's two beholds in this, in this passage here. We read the first one in verse 18 when we were introduced to Jairus. And now behold, and remember Matthew uses that, to grab our attention and say, hey, look what's going on now. Look at that. Watch this. And he says, uh, behold, in verse 20, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Let's go back 12 years before this moment again. At the same time, when Jairus and his wife were celebrating the birth of a baby, and presumably even in the same place, there was another lady whose life was forever changed. But hers, obviously, was not in the way that she had hoped. It was not in the way that she had expected. This unnamed woman had contracted an incurable blood disease that plagued her for many years. This disorder of, uh, meant that the woman had a continual hemorrhage of blood that affected her in more ways than you might think. Aside from the physical suffering and the weakness that uh, a severe and constant blood loss would, would bring, Leviticus 15 tells us that this specific illness, this disease, made her ceremonially unclean. That meant she was unable to worship in the synagogue. That meant that uh, this uncleanness made her somewhat like a leper. Not unlike a leper, it prevented her from having any contact with people because they, that would, uh, she would contaminate them with just a touch. In fact, just like a leper, anything that she touched became unclean. Therefore, if she were to touch something and then someone else was to touch that same thing, 
that person would become unclean. So this woman was, was, was very, uh, not contagious in that she was going to spread disease, but that she was going to spread a, a ceremonial uncleanness, which was a very important thing to the Jewish people. Grant Osborne called her a virtual leper because she would have had to leave her family and her friends and her village out of fear of transferring this uncleanness to the people in her life. So this blood disease is responsible for keeping people at a distance. Sentenced her to a life of isolation, rejection. Imagine this. Imagine being diagnosed with such a problem and in such a time. You have this problem now. It's not going to affect you in the same way that it affected her in in Israel. Imagine the upheaval that happened in just a day, just a moment of time, and it lasted for 12 years. If she had been a wife or a mom, simply hugging or touching her husband, holding her child would make them ceremonially unclean. She could not go to the temple. She could not worship in the synagogue. And now neither would they. Just living in the house with her made them unclean prevented them from regular worship and day-to-day interaction with other people. This was, this was a nightmare of a disease. Probably the only thing worse than this was the actual leprosy herself because at least on the surface she didn't look sick. But she was. Of course, again, if someone today was diagnosed with something similar to this, uh, we, you'd seek out every treatment that was available. You'd do everything you could to fix this. Not just for the physical uh, relief, but for the the emotional uh, restoration that it would bring, the the social uh, isolation that you experience would no doubt mess uh, up everything going on in your life. And this is a woman; we don't know how old she was, but no doubt she had developed uh, a lifestyle. She had gotten a, a routine down, and now all of a sudden, this messes everything up. This blood disorder, this hemorrhage, this disease. This woman tried everything she could. Mark and Luke write to us that she spent all the money that she had. She went to multiple doctors. Nobody could do anything. No treatment would work. No medicine would cure her. In fact, Mark 5.26 tells us that after 12 years of, uh, her, of, of, of treatment and, 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 and experimental treatments of all kinds, she wasn't getting worse, or she wasn't getting better. She was getting worse. Not even the fact that she was just remaining stable, but her life was getting worse. She had run out of options. She had run out of money. She was running out of hope. But like Jairus, one day she heard that Jesus was in town. We don't know what she knew about Jesus, except for what we find in this little story here. She learns that he's passing through the streets that very day. And she was convinced that if she could just get to him, she would be healed. So she braves the crowded streets and makes her way to find the miracle she desperately needs. She had tried everything else. So this truly was her last option. This was her only there goes Jesus down the street with his disciples. It's a, it's a busy day. Read, read Mark's and, and Luke's 
uh, account of this and, and see uh, that this is not a, a, a deserted street where a few people are walking down and she slips up behind them. But this is a crowded area. She, she sees him following this man through the crowd. Maybe she recognized Jairus. Maybe she knew he was the ruler of the synagogue, but I doubt that she knew too much about Jairus' situation. I wonder though if she knew someone else's life was in greater distress maybe than her own. But we, we don't know what she thought, but we know that except for the fact that she knew this was her chance. Whatever brought Jesus to the street that day and whatever caused Him to pass the way that she had gone, she didn't think see it as Jesus is going to help someone else. She saw it as, here's my chance to find my healing, my miracle. And whatever else was happening at that moment, if she didn't act now, she would never get another chance like this. So look in verse number 21. She says, she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. I will be made well. There again, there's that confidence. I will get what I need. I will be healed. And, and, and she's, the way that, that Matthew writes this here, and it's not necessarily evident in, in the way that we translate it in English, but it was, it was a continual saying this to herself. She kept saying this to herself. If I just get close enough and touch the edge of his cloak, if I touch the, the garment there, I will be whole. I will be healed. And, and, and as she approaches Jesus, making her way through the crowd, uh, probably bumping into people and, and them not knowing who she was. But she's making her way through the crowd telling herself, if I can just touch Him, if I can just get to Jesus, I will be healed. And this gives her the courage to press on. She didn't want to be a bother. We, we see what her, what her intentions were. She didn't want to stop. She didn't want to make a scene. She didn't want all eyes on her. She simply wanted to touch the little tassel that hung at the bottom of Jesus' clothes. All Jewish men at that time wore uh, or clothes that had uh, little tassels in the corners of them, and it, and it was symbolic of their devotion to God. And her thought was, all I need to do is touch that little tassel, and if I can do that, I will be clean. And if anybody saw her, and think about this, the Levitical law was very clear on, on about her condition. She was not to have contact with people. She was not to be specifically touching people. And she's making her way through a crowd. And if anybody there had known her and of her situation, as they recognized her, they would have definitely pushed her away. Well, not pushed her away because they would have been unclean. They would have, they, would have, they would have told her to leave. They would have made a way. Remember when the leper came in Matthew 8? And, and, and imagine just the crowd parts as he's coming because he looks bad. This lady was just as bad as far as the, the Levitical law goes, and yet no one could see how bad it really was. But here she comes. And finally, she makes her way to Jesus. Quietly, anonymously, very secretly, slips behind Him, reaches out her fingers, and brushes the fringe of Jesus' clothes. And the Bible tells us that immediately she was healed. This is what she wanted. This is what she hoped for. In fact, Mark tells us that she felt the change happen in her body. She felt it happen immediately and it worked just as she had hoped it would. But then something happened that she hadn't planned. 
Something happened that she didn't expect. Jesus stopped. Turned around. Mark and Luke tell us a little bit more about what happened, but he asks, who touched me? And of course, you know the story the disciples were saying, Jesus, everybody's, everybody's touched me. What are you talking about? We're running through the streets. What do you, what do you, how can you expect to find that out? But Jesus continues to ask this question because he knew that power had gone out from him. You know, this joy and the relief that the woman had instantly experienced instantly flees and is replaced with fear, trembling, because she knows she's been caught. When she came forward and she admitted that it was she who had touched Jesus, she didn't receive a rebuke. She gets comforted. She is encouraged. Look in verse number 22. She said, and Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Instantly the woman was made well. Take heart. Be of good cheer. Be of good comfort. It's the same words that Jesus told to the paralytic that had been lowered through the ceiling at the beginning of chapter 9. Remember, they removed the roof tiles and here comes this man following and the first thing that Jesus tells this guy is, take heart. Be of good cheer. Be of, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. He encouraged them. In fact, not only did Jesus encourage them or comfort them, the very next words out of His mouth show that He accepted her. He welcomed her as a daughter. Nowhere else in Matthew does Jesus call a woman daughter. And this woman, who for the last 12 years had lived in isolation, was now received by Christ Himself. And He called her His daughter. And then best of all, Jesus offered her healing. Because he, get, he says, look in verse 22, your faith has made you well, has made you whole. This is an interesting word here that we see here translated as made you whole or made you well because literally it means to be saved. It literally means your faith has saved you. When someone is recorded in Scripture as being physically healed, like these, these, uh, this lady was or the stories that we've read, usually... The, the words in, in Greek are eomai or therapeuo. But here, it's you, the word used is sozo. And John MacArthur aptly notes that this, sozo, is the usual New Testament word that is used for being saved from sin. And he suggests that it's possible that not only did Jesus heal her body at this time, He also forgave her sins. Remember when the paralytic was lowered down. What did he say? He says, your sins are forgiven. He didn't heal him. He he, he forgave him. And then he said, now you're forgiven. He offered him both at the same time. Here, Jesus didn't just heal the woman. I think He saved her. I think that Jesus didn't allow this woman to remain healed and hidden because He wanted her testimony to be exposed. He didn't want her to remain in the shadows because He wanted her to be a witness to the healing and saving power of Christ. If this woman had had it her way, she would have touched His clothes, felt the healing, and let it pass by. She didn't want to stop Jesus. She didn't know where Jesus was going. But He did stop. He did turn around. He did say something to her. And it was to expose the miracle that had happened in her life. He didn't want want to get her in trouble. 
She had broken some protocol here. He wasn't trying to expose her to get her in trouble. He was trying to highlight, first, what had happened to her, and secondly, who had done it. Who had happened to her? Because that was the most important, the most important part. That testimony would have forever remained a secret if Jesus hadn't stopped and pulled her out of the shadows and shined the spotlight not on the woman who was healed, but on the Savior who healed her. Friends, we too have been healed and saved by Christ. If you're a believer this morning, you are healed. The spiritual sin, the death that we are that we that we are born in, is gone, and we are alive in Christ. And if we have been thus healed and saved by Christ, we must be vocal about it. We must be public about what great things God has done in our lives. Psalm 107.2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. In other words, if you have been helped, if you've been healed, if you've been saved, if you've been redeemed, say so. Say something about it. Don't just sit back and let it pass on and, and experience it all for yourself and be excited for just you, but let it, let it go on to other people. Don't keep your testimony hidden in the shadows. There are others around you who need to know about the miracles that God has worked in your life. Tell others what happened to you. and Point them to who did it. Now, as with, as with Jairus, I don't know how great this woman's faith was. There was a little superstition mixed in here with her faith because she believed that touching his clothes was going to heal her. Of course, Jesus, Jesus didn't wear magical clothes. He didn't have uh, an aura about him that, that just that, that, that made everything about his clothes supernatural. It was the healing that came from Christ, not from the robe. But the faith that she did have, Jesus said, is enough. It was enough to heal her because he says, your faith has made you well, it saved you. And from that moment on, she was forever changed. Her faith might have been the size of a mustard seed. But we know that Jesus said that even faith that small is enough to move mountains. This faith was vital to the woman's healing. It wasn't that she touched his clothes. For then, none of us would have an opportunity to be saved and healed when we need it. Because those clothes aren't around. Those clothes aren't even being worn by the Christ that saves. It was her faith that saved her. And if and it was just as necessary for Jairus to find to have that same faith if he were to find help for his daughter. And just as quickly as the woman passes into the scene, she is passes off the scene, and we're right back to Jairus' story. Jesus continues down into Jairus' house. And he he met he, he's met with the distinct sound of a funeral dirge and loud mourning. Now in those days it was it was it was customary to mark the death of a of a person uh, with loud music and even louder weeping, they play flutes. They would, they would, they would, uh, they would have mourners. They were professional mourners that would come and and wail and cry out loud for the departed. They might not even know who that person is, but that was customary, and that was how Jesus approaches the house. Many people had gathered there at Jairus's home, no doubt because of his position, 
because of his influence. And they come to grieve and mourn the loss of the little girl. I'm sure there were some who were truly and genuinely mourning the loss of this 12-year-old girl as we would thinking about a life that ends, in our opinion, too short. But then there are those who are there for the the profession of it. Now, if she had not been dead when Jairus left to look for Jesus, she was certainly dead by the time they got back home. But look at what Jesus says when He walks up. Because it would seem that Jesus has now arrived too late. Just like with Lazarus. He was told when there was time, but when He got there, time was run out. But look at what he says in verse 24 when he gets to the house. Verse 24, he says, uh, he said, go away. Tells the, the funeral procession, the mourners, the flute players, the, 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 the people there getting all the, the preparations ready. He says, leave, go away. Why? The girl is not dead. She's sleeping. Now, of course, the crowd knew that the girl really was dead. This is a strange Way to speak up at a funeral. Imagine walking into a funeral here and telling all the mourners, hey, leave. The person in the casket is not really dead. They're just sleeping. Let's all leave now. Don't wake them up. They look peaceful. They look like they're having a good rest. Leave them be. Let's go outside. And they laugh at him. Now, I imagine myself in this scenario several times this week thinking about if, if, if I were to walk up, let's say that you were at a funeral and, and, and it was a funeral of your family member, of your loved one, and, and I walked up and I said, hey, they're not really dead. They're just sleeping. You'd probably look at me like I was crazy. Like I lost it. No, they're really dead. No, I, 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 they're sure. Uh, they, they double-check these things and triple-check these things. We, we don't want a, an almost dead. Nearly dead? Is that, was that how uh, uh, the, the, the Princess Bride is how the, the, the magician there, Max, says he's not dead, he's just nearly dead. Almost dead. No, this one was really dead. She really was gone. And they look at him as strange. Why would you say these? And the Bible says that they laughed at him. They mocked him. They didn't realize that Jesus knew he, she was dead. But he was showing that God does not view death in the way that people do. That's why we see it in the New Testament that death is often referred to, at least for the believer, as sleep. Nobody cries when someone goes and takes a nap because we know we're going to see them again. They're going to wake up eventually. Sometimes we are, we are so excited when our kids do take the nap. And when a believer dies, Jesus and the apostles and and throughout the New Testament, the writers call it sleep. Because we know we'll see them again. Because they're not gone forever. But they don't understand that. These professional mourners. And, but Jesus knows that the professional mourners are not needed for a girl who isn't dead. Or won't be for long. So He put them outside. Now, this doesn't mean that He ushered them outside. Alright, everybody know Lee. This is the same wording that He uses to, to, when He r- drives the demons out of the men. This is the same type of word that is used to describe when Jesus goes into the temple and He drove out the money changers. Jesus was not being polite in saying, everyone please leave now. He was forcefully driving them out of the house. And He's left with just a few of His disciples and Jairus and the mother. Jesus reached out and took the little girl's hand. And immediately life was restored. She got up. 
alive and well. Jairus had believed that if Jesus would lay his hand on her, she would live, and that's exactly what happened. He touched her. He held her hand and gave her life. One poet wrote, No longer must the mourners weep, nor call departed children dead, for death is transformed into sleep, and every grave becomes a bed. What a great day of rejoicing that must have been in that house. Now there were tears of joy rather than tears of grief. Hope was alive again because Jesus had done what nobody else could do. Verse 26 tells us there, the report of this went throughout all the district. The news traveled like fire. Everybody heard that not only does Jesus have the authority to make lame men walk and diseased women whole, Jesus has the authority to bring the dead back to life. This is a game changer, folks. This is a big deal. This is huge. You know, in both of these stories, as well as in every other healing miracle story that we read, we find that the circumstances are almost always different. We have different needs. We have people that come from different backgrounds. We have people who struggle differently. And even different ways that they come to Christ. And with varying levels of faith. But the one thing that is always the same, the one thing they all have in common is Jesus. The common thread that runs throughout the stories of the New Testament and even the Old, even in yours and in mine, is Christ. Jesus does what no one else can do. And we need only to turn to Him. The variety of each of these miracle stories in the Bible gives us evidence that no situation is too hopeless for Christ. That He cannot save. No disease, no illness is too far spread that Christ cannot heal it. No sin is too great that Christ cannot forgive it. Others may know of the hurt and the pain that you live with, like Jairus. His was not a private pain. He dealt with it in the way that nobody else could deal with it. It affected him differently, but others knew. Or maybe what you, you suffer through is much like the woman. Nobody knows. It even feels like nobody cares. That Jesus is the answer for every problem that we face. Notice two things. Number one, Jesus has time for you. There's never a moment when God is too busy to hear your prayer or to speak to you in your need. As Jesus made His way through the crowd in Jairus' home, I'm sure there was a sense of urgency, at least for Jairus and for the disciples, because they knew the urgency of the matter. We've got to get to this little girl now. And to be stopped by some woman was just a, a, a disruption. It was a distraction. It was, it was not necessary. But notice that it wasn't the woman who stopped the proceeding. It wasn't the woman who put a halt in their plans. It was Jesus. Why? Because she needed help. Jesus made time for her. Jesus is time for those in need just as he had time to stop and notice the woman and offer her words of acceptance, 
encouragement and healing. But then notice number two, that Jesus can still help even when time seems to have run out. I think Jairus believed that if he could get Jesus back to his daughter in time, that she would live. Jesus hasn't healed anybody, raised them from the dead. And even after this story, there are people who fail to believe that Jesus can bring someone back to life. Think of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Think of his own disciples who didn't believe that Jesus could resurrect himself. But Jairus here believed that if they would get there in time, though she was knocking at death's door, and though that it just seemed a matter of time, if they could get there in time, before the last grain of sand had fallen through the hourglass, he could stop everything and fix it. But even before they arrived at the house, Mark and Luke tell us that someone came out and said, don't trouble the Master any further. He's already dead. Too late. But Jesus said in Luke 8.50, He said, don't fear. Only believe. And she will be made well. In other words, Jesus was telling Jairus, even though time has run out, I can still work. Only believe. Believe that I'm not limited by time. Believe that death cannot stop me from what I'm going to do. This resonates, as I said, with, with his words to Mary and Martha. He, he said that only believe. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. And it points us to his own death, that death on a cross would not stop Christ. It would not be the end of him because Jesus destroyed death. He conquered death in the grave. And Paul, in his writings, quoted Isaiah when he says that death is swallowed up in victory. And he wrote, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was dead, Jesus lives today. Nothing, not even the power of death and the finality of death could prevent Christ from accomplishing His will. Therefore, we only need to believe. So, wherever you are, whatever you go through, right now, public or private, the things that burden you down, the things that weigh heavy on your heart, and I know some of them, and I know what, what some of you go through, and, and, and I know that, that just because of the way that life is, there, there are many more of us that go through things that nobody knows about. Or there are things that are about to happen, that have been in the, in the, in the coming, that we're not ready for yet, we don't know it's going to come, but eventually it's going to knock on our door and present itself and totally change your life. Whatever physical pain you suffer, or whatever emotional hurts that afflict you, public or private, Jesus can help. Christ can save. Only believe. Turn to Christ. Find healing. Find help. Find restoration. Find new life in Him.